Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Non-self, I need hardly mention, is a fundamental, some would say the fundamental teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha is often regarded as having taken a philosophical, specifically an ontological position on whether or not the self exists. But he actually scrupulously avoided taking sides on the issue. This is in keeping with the Buddha's avoidance of philosophical speculation across the board and skepticism toward views in general. Nonetheless, there have been those in later history who have turned non-self into an ontological commitment and who have produced and still produce abundant arguments for the validity of the position. What the Buddha did demonstrate is that the self is a presumption within the world of experience. Even presumptions are occasionally correct, but that we can learn to experience the world without this presumption and be better off for it. Buddhism is a practice tradition in which we train ourselves in wisdom, virtue, and composure, relying on the guidance of the Dhamma. Wisdom has to do with how we apprehend the world. The untutored worldling apprehends the world unskillfully, and this causes problems. The arahant apprehends the world otherwise, and thereby skillfully avoids these problems. But philosophical speculation does not touch our innermost drives and dispositions, since we humans are remarkably capable of intellectual conviction in one thing while consistently presuming its opposite in everyday life. A string theorist or a behavioral psychologist having returned home after a day of pondering and teaching nonetheless apprehends everyday life like most people. As Buddhists, we train to internalize new dispositions or to perceive the world with new eyes. Satipatthana is our most refined means of training in this way. I'm primarily interested today in investigating non-self in practice terms, given that the untutored worldling apprehends the world starkly in terms of self. What is it to apprehend the world otherwise in terms of non-self, and how do we get there? The Buddha would not have had to teach non-self if worldlings were not convinced of its opposite. Virtually all of us presume there is a self as a substantial thing or essence, a me that has been there as long as we can remember and we cannot conceive of a world without the self. We presume that self has certain qualities. First, we presume that it enjoys a reliably fixed or unchanging position at the center of a complex world of evolving or surprising circumstances. That is, it is at core relatively unconditioned. Second, we presume that It is an active agent with managerial control over what is me and mine. 
That is, it is a powerful conditioning factor. Moreover, we presume that the self is manifest in what we can directly observe in our own physical and active bodies, in our emotional and thoughtful, often demanding minds, and in our awareness of the world around us. It's also needy in its self-interests. We organize our worldview and everyday activities around the presumption of such a self. The self, as a self-centered actor and perceiver of the world, is the fixed demarcation between me and mine on the one hand and other and others on the other. As a result, life becomes largely a struggle of negotiation between self and other. And this does not go so well. Additionally, the self, as master of body and mind, is in the unenviable position of managing the unreliable and inconstant factors. This also does not go so well. In the Buddha's teaching, the self is a presumption, manita, a cognitive fabrication, sankara, that we conceive and then take as real. The Buddha had a low regard for presumption. Presumption is a disease. Presumption is a tumor. Presumption is a dart. By overcoming all presumptions, bhikkhu, one is called a sage at peace. And the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. He is not shaken and does not yearn, for there is nothing present in him by which he might be born. Nonetheless, to experience things as real is not to experience real things. In fact, we never actually observe the self directly, but only its alleged manifestations. Let me make an analogy. If you reach into your pocket and then show me what you've brought to the surface, I think I see money. No, I don't. What I see is an imprinted piece of paper or a piece of metal pressed into a certain shape. Intrinsic to money is its usefulness and exchange, and that is found in social convention outside of what is observable in your hand. More precisely, I do not directly observe money, but rather the money I see depends on an interpretation on, based on my knowledge of social conventions. Money, in spite of the evidence in your hand, is a fabrication, sankara, that we both experience as real. That is, it is a presumption. Similarly, if you go out to your garage and show me what you've brought back, you think you are showing me a screwdriver. But what I observe directly is a metal shaft flattened on one end with a plastic grip affixed to the other. There are no physical signs of screws nor of driving, nor any directly observable indication that its conventional usefulness might involve these two factors. I have to apply my cultural knowledge in order to see a screwdriver. The presence of a screwdriver 
is also a fabrication. Similarly, if I observe my breath directly or my emotions, I might think I'm observing myself. The evidence is manifest. But this also depends on convention. Probably the closest I can come to almost observing the self directly is the observing of my own awareness, say of coins or breath. For where there is sentience, there must be a sentient being. For doesn't seeing require a seer? Well, no, not exactly. Does raining require a rainer? Manifestations of the self. The presumed self manifests in various ways, but we are primarily interested in the pared-down self as evidenced in those observables almost universally attributed to the self. The self is subject to further elaboration through appropriation, upadana, and becoming bhava, culminating in our personal, full-fledged, acquired sense of personal identity. For instance, as a self-made tycoon, a cut-above-the-rest, magnificent in appearance, personality, and business acumen, but nonetheless humble about it. We will not be concerned with this inflated self here. We can recognize the most basic features of the presumed self in the early texts because repeatedly we are told, this is not the self, or this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Features for which selfhood is denied tend to fall under bodily phenomena, mental phenomena, and instances of awareness. In my previous talks, I've shown that these catalogs also correspond to the topics of the first three satipatthanas. It's natural also for modern people to think, I am my body, I am my mind, I am my consciousness, or some combination thereof. But then each of these is conceived presumptively in the same way as the self is conceived as reliably fixed or unchanging wholes. These abstractions are merely facets of the self we're trying to analyze. What we actually observe in our contemplations are fragmented experiences, phenomena, that we attribute to these facets. Our current posture, a physical action, an itchy nose, a clever idea, an eruption of anger, watching the sunset, recognizing your dog. The third source of evidence, instances of awareness, is particularly prominent in the early Buddhist texts and also requires the most discussion. An instance of awareness has a characteristically dual structure. On the one hand, it's a mental event, conditionally related to other factors such as attention. On the other, it is awareness of something, and that something is most typically physical. An instance of awareness or consciousness or perception or seeing and so on is by nature referential, much as words are referential. 
whereas bodily and mental phenomena can be visualized as enclosed within the self, awareness events look beyond the self to encounter the other. That encounter can result in craving and even appropriation into the self as me and mine. For instance, as my BMW, being aware tips easily into the presumption of a self as well as the concomitant presumption of the opposition of the self to the other, as we presume that perceiving requires a perceiver and a perceived, and that seeing requires a seeing and a seen. There are many modes and synonyms for awareness, both in English and in Pali. Very commonly in the early Buddhist literature, Awareness events are represented by Vedana, sensation. Although Vedana is commonly defined as painful, pleasurable, or neither painful nor pleasurable. We note that Vedana is in fact a gerund of the verb Vedati, sense, know, or experience, and hence is literally close to awareness in general. And although the examples of Vedana repeated in the Pali formulas seem to be limited to immediate, simple valuations of suffering, pleasure, or simply mattering, this factor is, in fact, the incipient awareness from which more complex forms of awareness unfold. With contact as condition, there is sensation, what one senses, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation beset a man. For the Buddha, all things come together in sensation. Often sensation is listed together with four other modes of awareness. Together they constitute the five aggregates. Form, sensation, perception, fabrications, and consciousness. They are ordered by levels of complexity, beginning with raw sense data and ending with fully fleshed out apprehensions of the experiential world. They are called aggregates because they are categories that aggregate instances of awareness. As stated, awareness has a dual nature. As awareness events aggregate, a world of experience is augmented and enhanced as the byproduct of awareness. In fact, the self is sometimes identified with the world, loka, for which the Buddha is consistently not the objective world, as science might envision it, but rather the experiential or phenomenal world as we experience it, which we commonly presume to be objectively real. After all, if you are an annihilationist, when you are born, your experiential world opens up. When you die, it closes. The world is uniquely your own and accompanies you constantly. 
who's to say it's not you? There are a number of references to the self as the world in the early texts. The following pericope is stated with each of the aggregates in turn ending with consciousness. When there is consciousness, by clinging to consciousness, by adhering to consciousness, such of you as this arises. That which is the self is the world. Having passed away, that I shall be permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change. Notice that consciousness, and likewise for each of the other aggregates, has an ambiguity inherent in the duality of awareness. It can refer to a mental event, but it can also refer to what one is conscious of. What we cling to here is most likely what consciousness has brought into the world. Consider also the following, which seems to include the world as a composite conception of the self. In this fathom-long living body, along with its perceptions and thoughts, lies the world, the arising of the world, and the cessation of the world. Quelling the self. Given that the experience of the self causes problems, and that we are capable of experiencing otherwise, the Buddha is concerned with mitigating the effects of this presumption. This often appears in the form of reasoned arguments for initial contemplation. The Buddha seems to have presented three kinds of arguments against the viability of the self. One, the self lacks managerial control over its manifestations. Two, all observable manifestations of the fixed self are impermanent. And three, the self is of a constructed nature. The role of the self is causal. It is to have administrative control over bodily, mental, and perceptible assets. What is beyond its control cannot be me or mine. Consciousness is not self. If consciousness were self, this consciousness would not lend itself to dis-ease. It would be possible to say with regard to consciousness, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus. But precisely because consciousness is not self, consciousness lends itself to dis-ease. And it is not possible to say, with regard to consciousness, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus. Effectively, this says that consciousness, preceded by the other four aggregates, should be able to produce experience that is more conducive to human well-being, if that's what it wants. The manifestations of the self are all fragmentary, situation-specific, and ever-changing, that is, impermanent and lacking that substantial and reliable fixedness we presume the self to have. 
Yet these manifestations are the only observable evidence that there is, in fact, a self. How can we infer what is unchanging from what is impermanent? Now, Ananda, one who says sensation is myself should be told there are three kinds of sensations, friend, pleasant, painful, and neither pleasant nor painful. Which of the three do you consider to be yourself? When a pleasant sensation is felt, no painful or neither pleasant nor painful sensation is felt, but only pleasant sensations. When a painful sensation is felt, no pleasant or neither pleasant nor painful sensation is felt, but only a painful sensation. When a neither pleasant nor painful sensation is felt, no pleasant or painful sensation. A pleasant sensation is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen, bound to decay, to vanish, to fade away, to cease. And so too is a painful sensation and a neither pleasant nor painful sensation. So anyone who on experiencing a pleasant sensation thinks this is myself must at the cessation of that pleasant sensation think myself is gone. And the same with a painful and neither pleasant nor painful sensation. Thus, whoever thinks sensation is myself is contemplating something in this present life that is impermanent, a mixture of happiness and unhappiness, subject to arising and passing away. Therefore, it is not fitting to maintain sensation is myself. The situation might be compared to taking a job at a corporation in which no one is ever seen or directly communicated with the CEO on the top floor, from which their directives originate by some indirect means. Skepticism is bound to arise. The final reasoned argument is that the self is not viable, is that we observe the processes by which or the elements from which it is cognitively constructed. For instance, the famous encounter between the demon Mara and the Bhikkhuni Wajira illustrates this principle when he tries to confound her with puzzling questions about this being, she responds. Just as with an assemblage of parts the word chariot is used, so when the aggregates exist, there is the convention of being. The aggregates are five types or stages of awareness. Form, appearances mediated by the senses, sensations, perceptions, fabrications, and consciousness. Splitting awareness into five separate factors subverts the unity otherwise identified with the self. Then she states that we see a being only through interpretation based on convention. This reveals the presumptive nature of the self. Arguments that the self is a mere presumption can only carry us so far. We might agree with the arguments and still experience the world 
in accord with the presumption of a fixed self. Worldlings sustain contradictions quite readily. Behavior and thought in accord with non-self must be developed and cultivated. This is achieved through satipatthana practice. Thank you.